everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. How's everybody doing? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Good. Good, good. Welcome to Audio Judo, proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, as usual. Pantheon is devoted to giving you the best in music-centered podcasts with new material released daily. We release our episodes every two weeks on mm-hmm. Fridays, so we would love it if you uh, subscribed and made us a regular part of your podcast listening. Please do. Coming up in the next couple of months, we have episodes about Elton John. 21 Pilots, Ooh. Stevie Wonder, Tears for Fears. Uh, so uh, as you can see from that cross-section, we cover pretty much everything. Yes, we do. So join us. What are we talking about today, Kyle? Well, Matthew, what's your favorite foreign movie? What's your favorite foreign movie? We're talking Steely Dan's Asia today. And you picked this one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you picked this one as my punishment for picking pet sounds. It's <laughs> That's fun to say. Punishment for picking pet sounds. Why do you think it's my Punishment for picking, picking pet, pet sounds. I feel like when we when I picked pet sounds, uh, we talked about how you talked about how it was a it's a giant hole because there's so much information about that album, yeah, and it's so well regarded amongst uh, the the audiophile community that you, we kind of fell into the, all the research and it's like okay, how do we weed through this? How do we pull out all the the fluff and and have a good episode out of it because there was just so much. And then this album. <laughs> Is in that same category. It's super highly regarded amongst audiophiles as yep. being, you know, I, I've heard people, I've read about people saying it may be the most perfect recording to come out of a studio. Um, just because it, it's not only is it very high quality, they had very high standards for the musicians, for the performers, for um, everything that happened. Uh, and the engineering is is well above what most normal people would do. Mm-hmm. So I punished you. You punished me, and I feel like that's why you picked this one. Maybe. But why did you pick this one? Part of the reason. We'll get we'll get there. Oh, okay. So this one, it's like you said, it's Asia, pronounced Asia, but spelled A-J-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was uh, Steely Dan's sixth studio album. Uh, would become their most commercially successful and critically reviewed album of their careers to that point. Much later release, entitled Two Against Nature, released in 2000 would garner four Grammys for them. Mm. So it was bigger, bigger hit. But um, about a little background on the Dan. Yeah. So the band primarily consists of Walter Becker on guitars, bass, background vocals, and Donald Fagan on keyboards and lead vocals. Uh, These two met in 1967 at Bard College in New York. Fagan was apparently walking past the cafe and heard someone practicing inside and said it sounded really professional and contemporary. So he walked in and asked Becker if he wanted to be in a band. (laughs) Pretty easy, right? Yeah. They had the same interests musically, and they began writing songs together. Uh, Neither one of them really had much interest outside of making music. They didn't (laughs) do much else. People used to say they were ghosts because uh, they were so pale, because all they did was stay up all night making music, chain smoking, lucky strikes, and doing dope, and then they slept all day. (laughs) Fagan Fagan did note that this was probably the only time in his life that he actually had friends. Oh. Because the two were notoriously bristly yes. when it came to interviews. Even with one another, I feel like uh, yeah. they were very bristly. Uh, and they would go out of their way to screw with reporters or pretty much anyone just to, <laughs> just to mess with them. What I, find, what I find super interesting about these two is they, they were huge nerds. They were huge literary nerds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both worked on degrees in English. Mm-hmm. They're nerds. I don't know how else to describe it. They are musical and literary nerds. They both were incredibly well-read, incredibly well-spoken. And uh, in one of the interviews... I'm, 
forget who it was, but they said that, you know, they were both very funny, but it wasn't like fart jokes funny. It was like highbrow funny. Like if you hadn't, if you hadn't read, you know, all of Dostoevsky, you wouldn't understand the joke that they just told. told. And they would both bust up laughing and everybody else in the room was like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's all Jean-Paul Sartre jokes about critical thinking. Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. That's hilarious. Like Voltaire, I hardly knew her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Uh, Uh. So, so they, uh, they were only mildly successful for a time. Before Steely Dan scoring minor hits with a band called Jay and the Americas in 1971, uh, when Gary Katz, one of their associates, moved to Los Angeles to become a staff producer for ABC Records. Uh, He hired Fagan and Becker as staff songwriters and moved them out to L.A. where their fortunes changed. They realized that their songs were too complex for ABC's musicians, (laughs) uh, so they decided to form their own band. As you do. So let's talk for a second, Kyle, about that band name, shall we? Oh, goody. Steely Dan is a revolutionary steam-powered dildo <laughs> that is found in the book Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs. Once again, ties back into their uh, literary backgrounds. It is quite a graphic passage that I won't repeat here. <laughs> but there are three versions of uh, the Steely Dan, uh, Steely Dan that are talked about in the book in great detail. <laughs> Steely Dan 1, 2, and 3. Uh, anyone who has heard of William S. Burroughs, which I, I'm sure is a lot of our audience, yes. if they are fans of 70s rock, know he is an author from the Beat Generation who based most of his writings on his sordid life as a heroin addict and a wealthy dude. Uh, he was a Harvard grad whose parents set him up financially, assuring he would never have to work for a living and allowed him to travel wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he took full advantage of that. His book, Naked Lunch, was released in 1959 and was banned on and off and was one of the most recent examples of a book going to trial over obscenity laws as recent (laughs) as uh, the early 80s. Really? Apparently, Fagan and Becker, big fans of the Beat Generation, (laughs) hence their choice for the name of the band. I I remember hearing this as a rumor many years ago, like pre-internet, when I was fairly young, that that Steely Dan was a dildo. And Mm -hmm. being like, no, that can't be true. Nobody would name a band after that. And at the time, it was something that you had to like dig for. You had to be like, all right, so what book is this supposed to be from? And then you had to go to a library and find William S. Burroughs on the shelf and then find Naked Lunch on the shelf. And then you had to be embarrassed because you were looking at Naked Lunch in a public library and be What's like, What's this uh, library you speak of? Right? I know. Nobody's ever uh, heard of that. That's, where do, what do you, what can you get there? Books? Uh, books, yeah. What, do you, they can will, you keep them? You, they will loan them to you for free, Matthew. What? Yeah. Or you can stand in the library and read them. You have to give them back, though? You do eventually, yes. Oh. But, you know, once you're done reading them. Hmm. That sounds like a fascinating concept. Right. Crazy. Socialism at work. (laughs) (laughs) Joining them in the original incarnation of the band were Denny Diaz on guitars, Jeff Skunk Baxter, also on guitars, drummer Jim Hodder, and singer David Palmer. Palmer was the primary-ish singer on the group's first album, uh, but the band felt that Fagan's voice suited their music better, and Palmer quietly left during the recording of the second record. Um, then Steely Dan began a course of adding and subtracting members like people change shoes. Yeah. Uh, Hodder and Baxter would leave the band in 1974 when they decided that they were going to be a studio band that had no interest in touring anymore, sort of. Also, the crippling stage fright that Donald Fagan had during this period also contributed to the fact that they did not want to tour anymore. Yeah, they basically decided to become a full studio band. Which just suited them 
to, to a, a T. Exactly. Uh, added at this time were Michael McDonald, who would end up finding solo success and success with Doobie Brothers as well. And legendary Jeff Porcaro was also in the band for a while, and he would end up uh, leaving to found Toto, the band. Toto. <laughs> uh, at one point, Fagan had said that he would be content to never actually play on another record. Just write it and hire the best music- musicians that they could get to actually do the playing on it. But that never happened. He actually played on all of them. But the list of musicians that played with them through the years reads like a who's who of jazz and rock musicians. Oh my God, yeah, it does. Just on this album alone. It's pretty impressive. The names that will come up later, yeah, it's substantial. So through the 70s and up until this record, uh, they had been getting more and more, gradually more popular with hits like Ricky Don't Lose That Number, uh, Do It Again, Reeling in the Years, Dirty Work. Uh, And it was clear that from the get-go, they had a very unique sound. And for me, that's the epitome of Steely Dan. They were meticulous in the studio, sometimes referred to as the Stanley Kubrick of music. I think that's a fair comparison. Because they demanded so many takes, sometimes as many as 40 or 50. And because of that, their songs sound tight and organized. But it's the way they sound that sets them apart from most other bands. Uh, They have a very dry sound. They almost use no reverb or echo. And the way they mix the band gave every instrument equal footing perfectly balanced, just spread apart. So we need to talk for a second about the other member of Steely Dan, and that man is engineer Roger Nichols. Mm -hmm. More than anyone, he was responsible for making them sound the way they did. Oh, yeah. Uh, There was a reason why he won four Grammys for Best Engineer for making those records. He would actually win eight Grammys in his lifetime. Producer Gary Katz had this to say about him. Roger Nichols made those records sound like they did. He was extraordinary in his willingness and desire to make records sound better. The records we did could not have been done without Roger. He was just maniacal about making the sound of the records be what we liked. He always thought there was a better way to do it, and he would find a way to do what we needed to in ways that other people hadn't done yet. So I would say that's an integral part of the band. Oh, yeah. Especially with a band like this that they're not playing live. They're playing only in a studio with this, you know, revolving cast of of band members. Mm. You have got to have an engineer that is absolutely top quality, world class, and on top of that, almost magical. Yeah. So that they can they can know exactly, okay, this musician is going to play it this way, so I need to balance it this way with the equipment. The next musician that steps into that chair is going to play it this way, so I need to do this to make it sound good. And then the next musician, I mean, it just it boggles my mind. I can barely balance one microphone. Right. Um, one. Let alone, you know... <laughs> All of the recording sessions for an album like this that then goes on to be regarded amongst some of the pickiest people in the history of mankind, audiophiles, yeah. to be very, very highly regarded. So much like Phil Spector from the 60s. Mm, yeah, the wall of sound. Right, sound. He would become known as an engineer as artist, elevating that more scientific aspect of the industry into art. He was also an inventor responsible for a drum machine called the Wendell, Mm. and it was actually used in some of uh, Steely Dan's later work on uh, Gaucho. Mm. Um, And he invented a nuclear clock as well. Uh, He was also an avid pilot, photographer, and scuba diver, much at odds with the group that he worked with, as Steely Dan were night owls and didn't do anything besides music. (laughs) So, unfortunately, 
when they were recording their 2002 album, Everything Must Go, Steely Dan fired him with no explanation. Uh, he was. Uh, it was because everything had to go. Everything must go, including the engineer. Yeah. And he was devastated by the treatment after working together for 30 years. But these guys are surly. Yeah. That's the reputation, real or imagined, that Steely Dan had fostered over the length of their careers. They're kind of dicks. Unfortunately, Nichols passed away a few years ago at age 66 from pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, so this album, Asia, was released in September 1977. Kyle, do you have the uh, sales and award statistics I for do. this record? Uh, double platinum in the U.S., meaning 2 million sales, on its initial release. Since then, depending upon which numbers you go with, it has sold between 4 and 14 million copies, That's which is ridiculous. It's a pretty big gap. Though. Yeah, it's a very large gap. And I, I still think the 14 might be a, a misprint in the article that I was looking at, because mm. I was like... That seems like a lot. But anyways, I did see it out there. So, All right. We'll uh, go with it. Double platinum in Canada. Silver in the UK. 60,000 uh, albums sold on its initial release. Won the Grammy in 19, 1977 for Best Engineered Recording Non-Classical. Again, like we've said before, it's become this go-to album for audiophiles all over the world because it's of its uh, technical perfection. For years, and still probably to this day, it's used as a um, the demo CD or demo audio on a lot of high-end stereo equipment uh, because you can you can play it and it's it's so the range is so wide on it you can hear there are some songs where you can really hear the bass there are some songs where you can really hear the highs there's a lot of songs where you can hear the mids you can hear everything really really well coming out of the, whatever the audio system so is. an album released in 1977 mm -hmm. is what is still the album that a lot of people are using it's impressive it's very impressive one of the places I got a ton of information for this album, there was a, a show called uh, Classic Albums uh, that uh, was a public education program covering, surprise, classic albums. What? Um, there was a 1999 episode uh, about Asia, and it is just jam-packed. They basically do a track-by-track -track breakdown of almost every song, and they have a lot of the original musicians come back uh, and record, re-record they have uh, uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan are sitting at a giant recording console through the whole thing. And they're like, hey, let me, you know, this is what the horns sound like separate. And this is what this sounds like. And they're, it's fascinating to watch because they're kind of rediscovering like, oh, wait a minute, what is this? And it's this weird little tinkling noise. And they have to sit there for a second. And then they're like, oh, I remember we added that in. It's whatever this weird instrument is. And we added it in to bring out the highs in the horns. So if you play both of those together and then you take it out, you can hear the difference. And that show plays pretty used to play pretty regularly on VH1. Yeah. And there's great episodes for this one for for Pink Floyd's yeah. uh, Dark Side of the Moon and stuff. Yeah, there's so it. uh it is available on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how legit that is, but uh, you should go check it out if you have an hour. It's it's very, very good. I agree. And very informative. This is also uh, sort of the beginnings of Yacht Rock. Yep. Probably one of the earliest examples. I think their next record really is the next one is the one that kind of was more Yacht Rocky, yeah. but this has definitely has some elements of it. Chuck Eddy, uh, in an article for Spin uh, from January 1st, 2009, listed it as one of his eight essential Yacht Rock albums. Donald Fagan has said that this album was named for a Korean woman who married the brother of one of his high school friends, Asia. Mm -hmm. That story comes up quite frequently, so I would say that it's probably true. I would, I would say so. Like you said, you talked about its sonic perfection, which you know we will address several times, but it also had a very unique marketing scheme behind it. Hmm. Their producer, Gary Katz, wanted them to raise their profiles from hermits to actual rock stars <laughs> so he encouraged them to hire a manager which they hadn't done up until this point so uh, they did under protest 
they hired Irving Azoff, who had a number of connections within the record store world. He went to the stores and got them to list the new record at $6.99 instead of $7.99. And it Hmm. flew off the shelves. Because you're saving a buck. It became one of the season's biggest hits right after that. And that's pretty smart work. Interesting fact here. I was poking around iTunes uh, for this record, and every other record in their catalog is $8.99 or above. Mm -hmm. This one, $6.99. And I don't know. I don't know if they're doing that on purpose because that's what the original price was. And someone's got a great sense of humor to still continue that 43 years down the road or if it's just an anomaly. But as soon as I saw it, I'm like, well, that's that's That's, just good stuff right there. That's pretty good. I liked it. Also noticeable about this record is that there's over 40 session musicians. Yes. uh, And they are all the best. Oh, Um, my God. Yeah, they are. Barry Walters in a review for Rolling Stone had this to say. Music so technically demanding, its creators had to call in A-list session players to realize the sounds they heard in their heads but could not play, even on the instruments they had mastered themselves. So that pretty much describes that. Um, Let's talk about the cover art. Oh, yeah. And let's get this out of the way. It was not, despite everything on the internet saying to the contrary, designed by the late comedian Phil Hartman. (laughs) He did have a career in graphic design in the late yeah. 70s, uh, but played no part in this one, despite everything the internet screams in your face. I tried so hard to figure out where this rumor came from, and I couldn't find anything. It's just there's a whole bunch of people who say, oh, Phil Hartman designed that cover. Phil Hartman was part of the design. And it's like, well, great. How, what leads you to that conclusion? Yeah, and there's no evidence. Where's your evidence? It's, it's not like, oh, hey, he was credited or he worked at that studio or whatever. There's no record whatsoever that he had anything to do with it. Yeah. And it's everywhere. Yeah. It appears everywhere. Like, you know, Phil Hartman did this. No, mm. he didn't. At least, you know, I, I know that Wikipedia is the one of the sources that a lot of people run to immediately for their quick information. And at least on the Wikipedia article, it does say, contrary to popular belief, the cover design was not done by the late great Phil Hartman. Thank you very much, Wikipedia, for Whoever getting it edited right. that. And now that I've put it out there in the world, somebody's going to edit it back <laughs> before this episode comes out. And people are going to go and be like, it says it was designed by Kyle Phil Hartman. a liar. Can't believe Kyle lied like that. It is a striking cover, though. Yes, it is. Features a photo of Japanese model Sayoko Yamaguchi in shadow. Mm-hmm. You know who uh, you have the, the Hideki artist? Fuji uh-huh. is the man who took the, the photograph. Uh, and the design was done by Patricia... Mitsui and Jeff Weston. It's a very minimal cover. Oh, yeah. It is very, um, you don't really, unless you stop for a second and pay attention to it, you don't really realize what you're seeing. But it forms the shape, the silhouette of the model forms the J mm-hmm. in Asia. It's very cool. Yeah. It's uh, one of my favorite album covers of all time because it's so different and unique. Uh, there's a bunch of photos in the uh, the liner as well taken by Walter Becker and Dorothy White. Mm-hmm. And the liner notes were written by a Michael Phelan. Quote, Asia signals the onset of a new maturity and a kind of solid professionalism that is the hallmark, the hallmark of an artist that has arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, of course, Michael Phelan is was Becker and Fagan screwing around. <laughs> it is a, a pseudonym. <laughs> so uh, they like to write their own liner notes. Yeah, you know. It's a little bit of a twist. <laughs> Very we- uh, these artists are just wonderful people, and they've arrived. Who wrote that? We did. We did. Oh, all right. uh, We're talking about ourselves. We're talking about ourselves. Uh, before we go to the track by track, mm. just to sum up their history, um, so they would record one more record after this called Gaucho before they took a two-decade break. 
in the meantime, they recorded a couple of solo records each and soundtrack work besides. Uh, when they released Two Against Nature in 2000, people were absolutely ready for their return and they would win a number of Grammys. And of course, at this point, go back on the road because mm-hmm. he had had 20 years apparently to work that out in therapy and get over stage fright, whatnot. And they sh- uh, they had shunned touring for years, but towards the end of their career, they didn't stop. Uh, Walter Becker passed away in 2017 from esophageal cancer, but Walter Fagan still tours as Steely Dan right up until the lockdown, but not without animosity, which mm. we'll cover in the track by track because he's <laughs> pissed about that. You got anything else before we go into no, it? No, I think uh, I think we're good to go into the track by track. All right. Black Cow. Just your standard run-of-the-mill song about a drug or alcohol-addicted girlfriend who runs all over town on her yeah, dude you know. and comes back to him and wants him to understand and take her back. And he doesn't want to. All this framed around a black cow. Black cow being a root beer or Coke float. Not a root beer float. Not a root beer float? No. So, uh, nor is it a Pepsi milk. It's a Coke float? It, it is basically a Coke float. However... Uh, so Black Cow, there are tons of regional variations of this, which is why there's so much confusion. Uh-huh. The original Black Cow is two tablespoons of chocolate syrup, one cup of Coca-Cola, not Pepsi, or basically a can is how most people would mix it. Okay. Uh, one tablespoon of cream and one scoop of chocolate ice cream. Oh, that sounds delicious. I almost brought all the stuff to make this today and then bailed on it because I have to go to work tonight and I knew that if I ate ice cream, I would explode. <laughs> it, it destroys me. So, uh, anyways. Oh, now I really want a black cow. It uh, it does look a lot like a root beer float. Obviously, when you're drinking it, there's an alcoholic version as well. Tell me more. You put some ice in a highball glass, one shot of Kahlua, one shot of half and half, and two shots of root beer. Oh, I'm there. Right. I'll write that down. Uh, Give me. Read that again. Oh, I was gonna say that. Uh, oh, you want me to read the recipe again? Yeah, please. Uh, ice in a highball glass. Ice. Kahlua. Kahlua. One shot of Kahlua. One shot of half and half. Two shots of root beer. Half, half, and root beer. Any type of root beer? Is it? Uh, the recipes that I read all just said your choice of root beer. Okay. So I read three different ones that were basically the same recipe. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. National Black Cow Day is June 10th. Get out of here. No. There's a National, there's Black, a National Cow Day? Black Cow Day when you're supposed to enjoy a delicious black cow. <laughs> so uh, there you go. So Steely Dan has this way of making these wonderful little character studies in a lot of their songs. And a lot of the people they sing about aren't generally great people. No. But there are a lot of references to touch on in this song. Right out of the gate, he says, In the corner of my eye, I saw you at Rudy's. You were high. You were very high. <laughs> a Rudy's is a dive bar at 9th and 44th in the heart of Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. Back when this was written, it was a much darker place mm. than it is now. It's fairly gentrified now. But back then, it was a haven for drug dealers and such, which, hanging around Steely Dan's probably a good idea. You're probably going to do some good selling. Um <laughs> But just listen, uh, just listen to the sound of uh, of this song.
such a good like that funky backbeat to it and just the whole thing is they do such a great job of it's these amazing jazz sort of 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 riffs and things Mm -hmm. and rock but it's not like hard heavy rock it's this light rock with this perfect combination of of jazz fusion i would almost call it jazz fusion Mm -hmm. but at the same time not quite like it's It's more rock fusion yes instead there's more rock elements with jazz fused to it as opposed to the other way around across the board every instrument has its place and it's so well balanced voices give it this punch that fate that fuzz bass and it's so good and every bit of it it sounds so intentional so thought out some of the horn lines that are later in the song are really super tasty, and they remind me a lot of the horn section from Chicago, uh, the band Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's what it reminds me of, and it has this really very tight, full sound. So I spent a lot of time on message boards uh, trying to get a feel for what people thought about this song and uh, what the writers claim it was about. There are a number of disagreements about the origins of this song. Uh, there's one side that claims it is simply, like I said, about an addicted woman cheating on her man, needing to be let back in all the time and the man is clearly over it you know it's over now drink your black cow and get out of here that's the line from there and then there's this other side that claims it is about a pair of jazz musicians that were influences on becker and fagan and their tragic relationship and this is the synopsis i'll read it for you alternatively rudy's likely refers to rudy van gelder's studio in new jersey where many of fagan's and becker's jazz heroes recorded their seminal work Several Steely Dan songs make reference to the studio and showing up there high or inebriated. Uh, For example, Daddy Don't Live in That New York City No More, which refers to driving like a fool out to Hackensack, where Rudy's studio was located. Often jazz legends had a a difficult time coping with the lifestyles and rigors of performing and recording and constant temptations of drugs and alcohol. They needed a precious one, not not even necessarily a woman who would take care of them. Uh, For example, Francis Padre's relationship with Bud Powell. Padre's accompanied Bud to New York in 1964, but couldn't cry anymore while Bud sank back into drug addiction. Potters returned to Paris shortly before Bud died of an overdose. While there is no specific name in Black Cow that specifically calls out Bud Powell, his personality was known to completely change after just one drink, which would set him off into full addict mode. Most of Bud's greatest recordings were made at Rudy's, and frequently Bud was very high. It is not in the Fagan-Becker tradition to write a simple love song, Conjuring the specter of their jazz heroes was a far more likely muse. Wow. I like the commitment to that viewpoint, but when the writer of the song specifically says it's about women's behaviors and habits and it's pretty straightforward, it's hard to argue with the author regardless of how how well that's thought out. Because it is. Then again, though, we do know that they often screw around with people who are interviewing them. Also true. And it may be that they're just saying they're so sick of answering this question, they just keep saying, no, no, it's just, it's just, it's, it's what it is on its surface, just to get people off their backs, I think knowing a, full well that it has a much deeper meaning that they put into it. And like I said, it's a fair interpretation. I commend the work that they did because it's very well, yeah. well scripted and, and like, wow, that's a lot of digging to find that out. Because on the, you're right, on the surface... It could just be about that, or it could be about the other thing, too. Music. <laughs> That's all I got. That's all you got. Asia. Uh, title track. Hold on. We're going to take a break. Oh. Kyle. Yes. Have you ever uh, felt like you wanted to try something new? 
like oh boy. like cooking or basket weaving. Yes. But you didn't know where to start. Mm, that's like I a, do usually have trouble starting. Like you needed a roadmap or a guide. Yeah. A lot of people feel like that about jazz music. Ah. So, you know, they don't know where to start. It seems too complex. Do I start with a fusion or a big band or the legends? I, I know I feel like that personally. It is a very deep and, and rich subject with a, a lot of places you could start. Right. So, well, we here at Audio Judo have something mm-hmm. to fix all that. And with the help of our guest host and jazz spirit guide, Chris, we're going to uh, try and help you navigate the treacherous waters of listening to jazz. Uh, we will be premiering a new spin-off podcast series called Audio Judo Does Jazz in late April. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be fun, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. We're also recording that bad boy exclusively with the new podcaster kit from AKG. Yes. Chris doesn't have any experience in podcasting, so we wanted to make it as easy as possible for the person who doesn't have studio equipment or editing headphones or anything like that. So this podcaster's kit is perfect. He gets a cool mic, set of headphones, software, bingo, blango, he's podcasting. Yeah. All that means is more competition for us, so we have to bring our A-game because everyone is going to be podcasting soon. The only thing I didn't like about it is uh, since Chris is using it, I can't steal it. No, you can't steal it. That's unfortunate. So, uh... Well, it's a shame we had to send it to Chris. Yeah. He's, he's going to make the most of it. Yeah. Like I said, look for that series in late April. Yes. Because we are super jazzed about it. <laughs> oh, hey, oh. Dad wordplay. Asia. Asia. Title track from this record. Which is also titled Asia, which is why it's the title track. Very good. Sometimes you just know when a song is going to be important to you when you hear it for the first time. This is one of those songs for me. Ooh. Uh, I was not very familiar with Steely Dan for a long time. I think I had heard their music here and there, but didn't really know it was them when I heard them. My brother, as I have often mentioned on this program, was my primary musical influence, and he had two Steely Dan records to my knowledge. He had Can't Buy Thrill and Gaucho. Being influenced by artwork from an early age, me... Uh, Neither one of the album covers did anything for me, so I never bothered to listen to them. My most common exposure to them would have been at the dentist's office because it fell into that easy listening, gentle rock format that was supposed to put you at ease while you were there. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was about 14, I had been branching out from the stuff I had been listening to for years, the hard rock and metal and big brash rock and roll, and exploring more music that involved more intricate songwriting and melody. I had been playing drums for a number of years, even by that point, spurned by my, by my brother and my devotion to Neil Peart from Rush. But I never felt confident in playing that style. Uh, and my brother was a blues drummer, and that didn't seem like it was for me either. I wanted to be more compositional, not just kind of lay in the pocket and put a beat down. It's just not where my head was. So at the record store, I browsed through the Steely Dan section and saw the cover for this record and was taken aback by the contrast between their other record covers and this one it mm-hmm. definitely seemed out of the box so i bought it and the first song was great but this song changed my life and how i perceived music uh, wow i'm gonna play two clips from this song because it is so important and i really want to capture the flavor of what i'm talking about so here's the first one right here up on the hill people never stand they just
I had only ever heard chord changes like that in a song once before, up until that point. Are you familiar with Todd Rundgren, Kyle? That name sounds super familiar, but not Hello, right it's my me, head. guy. Okay. Yeah. He uh, he released an album in 1981 called Healing that had a number of these types of changes, but not pulled off with nearly the same skill as on this song. Okay. And the structure of the changes was so startling to me listening to music. You know, when you say something weird to your dog and the dog cocks his head to the side like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. That's the feeling I had. It's like I had walked into a completely different world. And now me, as you know, not being a sax lover in rock music, mm-hmm. knows that it has its place in other music like jazz. And the sax solo in this song. <laughs> well, it's, play, that's Wayne Shorter. Playing by Wayne Shorter, who played with Miles Davis Quintet, yeah. 60s, Weather Report, pretty much everyone in between. Mm-hmm. Um the solo is about as good as it gets. Yeah. And there are these great syncopated parts with the other horns and the drums and the bass that sounds so great. But it's the drums, Kyle. This song made me want to be a different drummer, Ooh. a better drummer. It's probably the best in-song drum performance all around I've still ever listened to. It's played by legendary drummer Steve Gadd, and it is unreal for all the things he did well. It's understated at the beginning doesn't do much at the beginning, but it's crisp and it gets tighter and tighter until this first solo break. And Gad does something that is very uncommon in rock music. He solos while the sax solo is going on. Typical rock music just has the other instruments get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Uh, They all fall off and they let the guitar do a solo or a keyboard solo and everyone else kind of fades a little bit. But he solos with him, coming out long enough to add these syncopated punches I was talking about. But that's not it. The solo he plays at the end of the song is fundamentally one of the greatest things put on tape by a drummer in the context of the song that he's playing on. Uh, There are better drum solos, there are better songs, but I don't think there are better solos within songs. It sounds like this. Walter Becker uh, said, quote, uh, his part was not written. We discussed the tune a little bit, and by virtue of his musicianship, he knew just what to do. Uh, He recalled, quote, telling him to play like hell, end quote, uh, through the part that became the saxophone solo. Mm -hmm. And he did this, Steve Gadd did this, in two two takes. takes. Not one, like is claimed pretty frequently, two, which were edited together in the studio Mm -hmm. later. But still, two takes. Two takes is That is phenomenal. 
It's so good. So from here, I would change my focus on the drums. I would change what I listened to for a long time. I started to listen to more fusion at this point, started to listen to Chick Corea, Spirogyra, bands like that. Uh, and it was so much for the better. It changed everything about my conception of music. And it all goes back to listening to this song for the first time. Wow. I wore this tape out listening to this song and the next song and had to buy another tape after I had totally broke it <laughs> because I listened to it so much. Because just within, you know, Neil had a, a way of, of writing compositionally within rock songs, but it was bombastic and big and thick. But I had never heard anyone do that, make the drums sound musical within that context. And it's still, it's, I was talking to Heather about it the other day. Like, this is what made me want to study and practice daily, <laughs> that sound. And that's, that's what I worked on playing for a long, long time. So uh, you have more about this? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, it was very quick to record this song. Surprisingly enough, unlike a lot of the other songs, for an eight-minute song, yeah. for an eight-minute song, it was uh, it only took him a few days to record, which was uh, different than everything else on this album. Uh, it also marks the last time any other founding member uh, from Steely Dan appears on an album. Denny Diaz played some guitar on this. Mm -hmm. Fagan uh, described this song as being about the tranquility that can come from of a quiet relationship with a beautiful woman, mm -hmm. which I'm still not sure if I find that wonderful or offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's kind of one of those sentences where it's like, oh, uh, uh, uh -huh. hmm. mm. I don't know. So, uh, listener, uh, judge for yourself. 30 some years of listening to it. I very rarely pay attention to the lyrics in this song. Yeah. They're, they're there, but <laughs> I couldn't tell you what it's about. Well, there you go. But uh, Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues. Perhaps the best known song on this record. Topped out sure. at uh, number 19 on the Billboard chart. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is another fantastic fusion song that incorporates rock and jazz. People like to call a lot of this the advent of yacht rock, like you mentioned, but it has uh, a little too much jazz in it, I think, hmm. at this point. It's not, it's quite, not quite there. Right. Uh, it's like a progenitor album. There you go. Good word. Yeah. Musically, it has, uh, has so much, but lyrically, it's really cool, too. The first line, the, this is the day of the expanding man. <laughs> so great. And... For me, it's a very much a midlife crisis song about a man trying to better himself or realize there is much more to his life than going to work and raising a family. There are other possibilities for him, like spiritual stuff or perhaps playing a saxophone. Yeah, in gross dive bars and then dying from a drug overdose. Right. Yeah, uh, as you do, or drunk driving, <laughs> Fagan, more directly. Fagan claims that this is a, an homage to the losers of the world. Mm -hmm. He also says it's about as close to an autobiography as our tunes get. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> uh, also, according to Becker, it's about a broken man living a broken dream and a broken life. Mm. Lots of broken. They felt that if the winners could have all the great names, there should be some sort of grandiose names for the losers as well. The line they call Alabama the Crimson Tide, then call me Deacon Blues. Asked, why Deacon Blue? Uh, he answered that his favorite uh, football player uh, was Deacon Jones a linebacker for the Los Angeles Rams at the time, and the fact that Deacon had two syllables, so it worked within the structure of the song. <laughs> Nothing more than that. Two syllables, sounds great. Uh, musically, it benefits from another great sax solo, this time played by Pete Christlieb. 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 Uh, I think, I don't know. I don't either. Becker and Fagan had no idea who he was, only that he was the saxophone player on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. <laughs> Christlieb said this about his ex experience. They told me to play what I felt. 
hey, I'm a jazz musician. That's what I do. So I recorded my first solo. We listened back and they said it was great. I recorded a second take and that's the one they used. I was gone on a half hour. The next thing I know, I'm hearing myself in every airport bathroom in the world. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Or perhaps at Maggiano's. Uh, perhaps at Maggiano's. Mm -hmm. You never know. Uh, Dean Parks, who played guitar on this track, said of Deacon Blues, one interesting thing about Donald and Walter is that perfection is not what they're after. They're after something that you want to listen to over and over and over again. So we would work then past the perfection point until it became natural, until it sounded almost improvised in a way. So it was like a two-step process. One was to get to perfection, and then the other was to get beyond it, to loosen it up a little bit uh, so it didn't have to be the perfect squeaky clean goal. It is quite an amalgamation, that's for sure, and it is interesting to note that it can be a hit. Yeah. I, thought that, I thought that was very much so they a great description of the way that they, they worked on this whole album, and for that matter, almost all of their music. So they, they worked wanted it, it so much? It went beyond perfection to... So to natural. Exactly. Where it became this sort of second nature for you to just sit down and play this piece so perfectly that it wasn't you weren't even focusing on playing it perfect. It was just something that came to you. That goes back to one of my my very favorite favorite uh, phrases when I used to coach Little League Baseball that was drummed into mm. my head when I played baseball growing up. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Oh. So you practice it so well all the time that it becomes second nature to you and you're not thinking about it anymore. You're just doing it. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what they're getting past that point of performance into automatic. Yeah. And there it, it's going to be the best because it's natural. You're not thinking about it. You're just doing it. Yeah, definitely. I love that quote though. It just really stood out to me. This is a song that absolutely gets stuck in your head for extended periods of time. While doing the research for this episode, I listened to this record a lot. And no matter where I stopped in the record, this is the song that would get stuck in my head. <laughs> I find myself walking around the house humming, Call Me Deacon Blues, probably yeah. because of this right here. So vibey. It is. It just gets stuck in my head. I'm going to hear it the rest of the day. Is it an earworm? Mm, I thought about writing that down. Hmm. Anybody wants to know about that, go to episode two of Audio yeah. Judo. That's how the, the number of the episodes stuck in my head, too. Almost like an earworm. Hmm. One, thing, one other thing I've noticed as I work through this record is how much these songs have been used by other artists as samples. Oh, yeah. I didn't write them down, but I know it is quite a few, kind of a testament to the timelessness of some of these tunes. Did you write down any of them? I did not. but I, I wrote down one, but that's later in the album. But I know that you, uh, like Randy was mentioning Arrested Development. The hip-hop group used uh, one of the songs. I know, I know there's a number of them that have been used. But yeah, that's all I got about, that, uh, about the blues. Peg. <laughs> Peg. Peg is the next song. And the songs continue to remain great. This is another well-crafted song. It's certainly one of the most upbeat songs on the record. Uh, this song was released as a single, 
one of their highest charting singles as well, topping out at number 11 on the Billboard chart. Pitchfork Magazine ranked this as the 87th best song of the 1970s. Wow. Which, unlike a lot of their lists, is fairly accurate. Hmm. I'm sure I could name 86 other songs from that era that I like better than this one, but it is still an excellent song. Apparently, it's a story about a girl who's at a CD photo shoot in L.A. from the perspective of a jilted boyfriend. Hmm. I know that for a long time, there was speculation that uh, Peg was uh, Peg Entwistle, uh, the Broadway star and Hollywood actress. But uh, in 2000, the band said the song was written about a real person, but not Entwistle. Just this year, 2020, Donald Fagan said, there's no hidden meaning. We just wanted a dotted half note for the spot, and Peg was short enough to fit with the music. Adding that the song, quote, takes place at a seedy photo shoot in L.A. from the perspective of a jilted boyfriend, like you just said. Peg. Peg. It is a dotted eight. That's nice. One short syllable. Yeah. Rick Marotta played the drums on this one, and he said of Peg, uh, I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I have ever played on. Uh, as far as drums were going at the time, it was like if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could uh, mm, play. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that quote for some reason. Rick Murata, also a giant. The horns in this song are also especially great. Mm -hmm. um, it's a nice touch. However, they aren't horns in the true sense of the word. It's actually an instrument called a lyricon. Mm -hmm. and it's played by Tom Scott. The lyricon is an electronic wind instrument that, quote, used a bass clarinet mouthpiece with a sprung metal sensor on the non-vibrating reed that detected lip pressure. Wind pressure was detected by a, a diaphragm, which moved and changed the light output from an LED, which in turn sensed by a photocell to give dynamic control. Tom Scott. Fancy. Is a very well-known and accomplished musician in the industry. He played the Lyricon on... I'm going to try to get this right. I always screw this name up. Michael J J Jackson. Michael Jackson. Right. The Russian singer. He played on Billie Jean. Oh. That's what this was on. And hundreds of other songs, as well as being a founding member of the Blues Brothers, <laughs> but being left out of both movies due to salary disputes. Oh. Michael McDonald of the Doobie Brothers and solo fame makes his first appearance on the record, although you can't really hear him too well. He gets a little more recognizable on a song coming up. They used his multi-track vocals here. I still can't really tell it's him unless you listen close. I don't know. You be the judge is what it sounds like. And I cut it off right before the most important part of that song, which is the guitar solo, uh, attempted by seven top session guitarists, including Robin Ford and Larry Carlton, before settling on the work of Jay Graydon. He worked on the solo for about six hours before they were satisfied with the result. That guy also has a resume that would stun. He played with everybody. Oh, yeah. 
This is a song that I know was sampled because I knew it coming out of it. And it's sampled really well in the song called I Know by Della Soul. Love that song as well. Go check that out because yeah. it's really good. This uh, once again has brought me around to uh, De La Soul is so hard to find their music. Oh, I found this one on uh, YouTube's. Okay. YouTube maybe, but uh, let me rephrase that. It is difficult to find their music on any music streaming like, uh, streaming uh, you know or anywhere you want to purchase it like iTunes or uh, Amazon digitally oh. because they sampled so much and because uh, the rights management for it is apparently a, a just a fucking nightmare <laughs> so nobody wants to touch it so YouTube is probably a great source yeah. um yeah but uh, every time I've tried to find De La Soul tracks, it's like, oh, let me go find it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. I guess I'll just illegally download it then. That Michael McDonald, mm -hmm. uh, the, the layered voices, and also uh, Jay Gordon's, <laughs> some of the alternate guitar versions of that in the, the classic albums episode. They're playing with the mixing board and they're like, here's what Michael McDonald sounds like. Uh, All by himself? Here's, here's his, just by himself. And here's the really high ones and here's the really low ones and here's the really middle ones. And they're like, sorry if we embarrassed you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, and then some of the uh, the alternate guitar uh, solos, people before Jay Gordon, uh, excuse me, Jay Graydon played, they play little samples of them. And it's interesting how completely different they are. Like, it's not like this was just a, you know, oh, we're playing from the sheet music. Oh, no. It's completely different. They were completely yeah. improvising it, and they're a totally different sound. It's a great sound, though. It is. Uh, home at last? Home at last. There are some weird distinctions for me on this record, similar to when we did Permanent Waves by Rush. Mm -hmm. uh, because while I think this is one of the weaker songs on the album, it is by no means weak, and I love it. There isn't really a bad song on here or mm. even a weak one, so to speak. It's just a couple that are a touch weaker than the others. So that there's an interesting leveling. Yeah. Um, just from the start, the shuffle that's in this song is so great. <laughs> the Purdy shuffle. Uh, it's so good. Uh, the drummer, uh, I can't remember his first name. His last name's Purdy, obviously. But he put that in a bunch of songs, put it on, uh, on another song on Gaucho. And it's just <laughs> it's such a... It's so... Uh, Iconic for him. The Purdy Shuffle started many, 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 many moons ago. But the best part of the Purdy Shuffle is you've got to remember one thing. The slower you do it, the more effective it is. And it's really no wonder that I was addicted to this record for so long so the harmonies on the vocals are perfect not one of them sound out of place and seriously every bit of it is so powerful and you can hear them working you can hear the band working through this and they're consummate professionals so lyrically it is a, a an homage to the odyssey yeah by homer hopefully we have some greek epic poem fans with us but if not i'll synopsize <laughs> where are my epic poem fans at right it is the oldest piece of literature still read by contemporary audiences. The poem is divided into 24 books, follows the Greek hero Odysseus, king of Ithaca, in his journey home after the Trojan War. After the Trojan War, which lasted 10 years, his journey lasts for 10 additional years, during which time he encounters many perils and all his crewmates are killed. Uh, in his absence, Odysseus is assumed dead and his wife Penelope and son Telemachus must contend with a group of unruly suitors who compete for Penelope's hand in marriage. Perfectly suited material for a rock song, right? Yeah. You know. Makes sense to me. Fagin expertly works it into a song about a relationship. 
Yeah. One line in there is she serves the smooth retsina. <laughs> retsina is a Greek wine containing Aleppo pine resin, further reinforcing that it is probably about the Odyssey. It's uh otherwise it's a really super coincidental reference. Yeah. Reading about that, it sounds disgusting. It doesn't look good. It, it, no. No, it doesn't look good. It doesn't sound like it tastes good. I don't even want to try it. No. But I got no uh I got no interest in that. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with you. I felt like this was probably, and you know, again, we're saying out of all the tracks on this album, this is not my favorite. It's probably one of the weakest two on this album. It's still a great track. If you got a if you got a number of tens and you have a couple of eights, like, like what, oh god, what a piece of shit! Exactly, like oh no, this song sucks. I've got all these platinum bars and then a gold bar. What is this uh, garbage? Throw it. But out. Uh, there's a a wonderful article written by uh, Brian Miller for uh, Vivacine. Uh, he wrote it in uh, December 2018, titled "Steely Dan: Home at Last." It breaks this song down and talks about the history of it and everything. And he says, quote, uh, Home at Last is a restrained masterpiece and indeed the centerpiece of the album. It is their most mature work. Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that. No. But uh, interesting take on it. Very much so. It's uh, yeah, that's not where I would have headed, but uh, to each their own. Other things of note from this song. Some of the backing vocals on it were done by Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles. So hmm. got some extra people in there of equal fame yeah i got the news uh kyle i got the news did you i did get the news yes did you get it that it was the next song yes did you also realize that we found it it's the fuck song it's the fuck song (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, right back to the funk and groove from peg and the tight drums from the last song so how do we know it's the fuck song kyle from the second chorus line slow down i'll tell you when I may never walk again. <laughs> I wonder what he's referring to there. Gee, I don't know. And then for the third verse, you get to say a big, huge hello to Mr. Michael McDonald. And this time it is unmistakable. And he sounds like this. can't miss it you can't and what's interesting is that as soon as you hear him singing it doesn't sound like steely dan anymore it sounds like michael mcdonald it's instantly he just sounds like a michael mcdonald song or doobie brothers song he just has one of those voices that just it takes over keep forgetting it's like all of a sudden you're like hey michael mcdonald's here hey what's going on hey uh From the liner notes for this, uh, I got the news, a Manhattan jukebox thump along serves as a vehicle for the coy pianistics of Victor Feldman, whose labors are capriciously undermined by Walter Becker's odd Django-esque guitar and a pointlessly obscene lyric. Who wrote those liner notes? Gee, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do love in this song this sort of really playful 
jazz style like back and forths that happen through the whole thing mm-hmm. where it's it's a lot of like call and response stuff where it's like piano has a piece and the guitar has a piece and the piano has a piece and uh, another guitar has a piece and it's it's fun it is and it's, it's a very fun track so well engineered you can hear every instrument yeah. like nothing gets washed out everything is is right there and you can hear every little bit even if it's just like a guitar just strumming lightly on the side you can hear it in one ear just there it is. Yeah. That's so well done. Josie? Josie. Last song on the album. Last song uh, released as a single. It peaked at number 26 on Billboard Hot 100 and number 44 on Billboard Adult Contemporary Chart. And it is my least favorite song on the record. I would agree with you. Uh, and it's just, it's hard to hold up to all of the rest. The, the best part is that Walter Becker guitar solo. Right. That is wonderful. I feel like this is for sure the most rock sounding song on the record. Yeah. And maybe that's why I don't like it as much, because it kind of takes me out of the world I've been living in for the past 35 minutes or so. But there are some great parts. Like you said, the guitar solo is fantastic. Um, Lyrically, about a girl coming home to her old neighborhood, and everyone, especially the guys, Mm -hmm. are very excited about her return. So do you think she's coming back from prison or Catholic school? Um, Because I've heard both. I heard both as well. I feel like prison might be a—just because what happens later— there's some interesting wordplay in the song, like, Joe, would you love to scrapple? She'll never say no, no, shine up the battle apple. Hmm. And they feel like that's some sort of uh, gang metaphor. Yeah. Um, battle apple. So the I saw, battle apple. I saw some interesting theories about that. Uh, my favorite interpreted that as the original or the OG battle apple, otherwise known as the golden apple of discord, which apparently started the Trojan War. Hmm. Some people have amazing imaginations in the way they connect things. Yeah. From Donald Fagan's mouth, Walter and I both love inventing slang. For example, in Josie, there's a street gang using a weapon called the Battle Apple. It sounded better than any real weapon we could think of. I uh, I like that explanation better. It's just something yeah. made up. <laughs> it's just some crap we made it's up. It's just some crap we made up. All in all, it is one of my very favorite records of my entire life for a number of reasons. It's clear they took great care when they recorded songs, but the songs are so well written in the first place that the engineering is just a welcome bonus. They would be great records without it. It would be a fantastic record even without the masterful engineering. So I highly recommend this record to anyone looking for a way to get into jazz sounds, but maybe not full into jazz. Yeah. Kind of ease yourself in and listen to Steely Dan. There's one more thing I think we've got to talk oh, about. Oh, okay. Because uh, I know that uh, Steely Dan sort of has had a resurgence in the last few years mm-hmm. uh, due to one uh, one important thing. What's that? Cocaine. <laughs> we like to do cocaine. Uh, no. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney's uh, Oh Hello on Broadway, <laughs> where they talk about Steely Dan. Snort. And there's a fantastic... <laughs> Article on Stereo Gum titled uh, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney Explain How Steely Dan Inspired Oh Hello. And in the interview, Nick Kroll says, uh, when we were writing the first version of the show, they, uh, the characters, were on trial for murder of somebody by too much tuna. And in their trial, their defense was based around the fact that they were like Steely Dan. Uh, John Mulaney says, right. Uh, you just don't get us because we're a little impenetrable, uh, but we're cool and we're hipsters and we're hepcats of the night, Nick Kroll. And so for some reason, we just immediately glommed on to that. And then we wrote uh, Sweet Rosalie based on FM. I think we can say that. John Mulaney, uh, Yodi da doidildi, the girls don't seem to care. Yeah, that's FM. Donald Fagan even came to the show's Broadway run and enjoyed it. 
quote, he came backstage afterwards and said, if you guys ever need any any music, my career is, and he motioned his hand going downwards, <laughs> which is hilarious because they still sell out the Beacon 10 nights in a row and have Venetian residencies, residencies and, and uh, sell out Dodger Stadium. Yep. They're quite well. But that, to me, was the highest praise that we could get was Donald Fagan was like, I'll make music with you guys. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, look that up and watch that special because it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's very good. But they, yeah, they successfully bridged that gap between rock and jazz. Yes. And it was, it's so important. Uh, speaking of jazz, so we are ramping up our production for our new limited series about jazz called Audio Judo Does Jazz. Uh, it is going to be a 16 episode podcast starting on April 30th. It will cover a lot of the basics of jazz and is definitely for the novice jazz fan looking for a way to get more info and get exposed to stuff they haven't heard yet. Uh, it will be hosted by Audio Judo's show consultant, Chris Delisle, and co-hosted by either me, Kyle, or Randy, depending mm -hmm. on the episode. Uh, it's going to be a fun time. We're looking forward to the finished product. Uh, if you want more of us in the meantime, and frankly, who doesn't, uh, head to <laughs> oh. our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Audio Judo for our mini episodes and discounts and early access. Plans start at just three bucks a month. If you have questions for us, please email us at info .com. Uh, You got socials over there? Yeah, uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter and Instagram at audio judo. Do get in touch. Tell us what you thought about uh, the first time you heard Asia. Yeah. And other than that, we will see you back here in two weeks. Take care, everybody. All right, bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.